0: Welcome to Backlog Books. My name is Kara. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I have been reading lately. Thank you for joining me and please be prepared for spoilers. Before I get started, I want to say that I have been adding transcripts to the episode notes. If that's something you're interested in, it's something I've been thinking about doing for a while. So If you open up the episode notes, there will now be a little link to click and see a PDF version of the transcript, which is an approximate transcript, not an exact one, because while I do write out the whole episode, a lot of the time what I do is, when I'm reading it, I change the way some sentences are structured, or I say a different word. So it's close enough. And I am going back and adding transcripts to previous episodes as well, though that is taking me a little bit of time. So going forward, there will be transcripts, and eventually all the backlog of episodes will also have transcripts. Okay, let's get started. This time we are talking about The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins. This book was published in 2020, which I almost can't believe. I feel like it's been out forever. I read it in August of 2021. Our author, Suzanne Collins, was born in 1962. She worked as a writer for children's television before becoming an author. Her screenwriting training carried over into her books, and you can tell that her books are structured almost like screenplays, apparently. Her trilogy, The Hunger Games, was on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year. She was named one of time's most influential people in 2010 because of The Hunger Games trilogy, and in 2016 she was given the Authors Guild Award for Distinguished Service to the Literary Community. Here is the summary of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. It is the morning of the reaping that will kick off the tenth annual Hunger Games. In the capital, eighteen year old Coriolanus Snow is preparing for his one shot at glory as a mentor in the Games. The once mighty house of snow has fallen on hard times, its fate hanging on the slender chance that Coriolanus will be able to out charm, outwit, and outmaneuver his fellow students to mentor the winning tribute. The odds are against him. He's been given the humiliating assignment of mentoring the female tribute from District 12, the lowest of the low. Their fates are now completely intertwined. Every choice Coriolanus makes could lead to favor or failure, triumph, or ruin. Inside the arena, it will be a fight to the death. Outside the arena, Coriolanus starts to feel for his doomed tribute and must weigh his need to follow the rules against his desire to survive, no matter what it takes. So, I recently reread the Hunger Games trilogy. I don't think I've read it since it came out. And I decided after I finished it that I really wanted to read. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is a prequel novel. The Hunger Games trilogy was so good and so interesting that I knew if Collins had decided to return and write again in this world after like 10 years, that there was a good chance it was going to be a really good book. So it is a prequel, but I think it works better to read the original trilogy first. Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is very much a companion to the first book, and I felt a lot of its impact came from the perspective it offers on the events in the original trilogy. So that's my opinion on the reading order, but that's just an opinion. I can't actually erase my memory of the original trilogy and read this one first and then try the original trilogy again to see how it works. If I could, I would, so that you could know for sure which way was better. But, unfortunately, we are all trapped by the linear nature of time. I'm going to give you a very brief summary of the original Hunger Games trilogy, in case you are unfamiliar with it or just need a refresher. So it's future dystopian America, known as Panem, split into districts that are ruled over by the capital, In the original trilogy, it's been 74 years since the districts rebelled, trying to free themselves from the tyranny of the Capitol and losing. In Retribution, the Capitol put together the Hunger Games, a yearly televised death match, where contestants are randomly picked from the districts, a boy and a girl from each district, each between 12 and 18 years old. The original trilogy begins in the 74th year of The Hunger Games, when Katniss is chosen as the tribute from District 12. Katniss and her counterpart tribute, Peeta, manage to force the Capitol to keep them both alive, something that's never been done before. Katniss's actions in the arena during the games help inspire another rebellion, and she becomes the reluctant symbol of the rebellion, which eventually succeeds in unseating the current leader of the capital, President Snow. They're very good books, which deal with trauma, oppression, institutionalized horrible systems, and a host of other difficult topics. And I know the Hunger Games trilogy, like, saturated media for ten years or something, but there was a reason for that, and the reason is they were good. So The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is set about 65 years before the original trilogy and is the story of President Snow. Yes, this is a villain origin story. Collins isn't here to make Snow into a sympathetic character. When it starts, you feel bad for the situation he's in, but it quickly becomes apparent that he is a very self-centered, entitled person who believes that the people in the capital are better than everyone else, and he is heavily invested in keeping the current power structure in place because he benefits from it. Okay, now that we're set up, our story begins with the 10th Hunger Games. The capital is still recovering from the recent failed rebellion. Many once-rich families are struggling to survive. Coriolanus Snow belongs to one such family. He and his cousin and grandmother are trying to keep up appearances, pretending they still belong to the uber-rich. And this is the part where I felt kind of sorry for Snow, because he and his family are close to starving and he's desperate For a way to return his family to its former glory. My sympathy doesn't last very long, though. The early Hunger Games are almost unrecognizable. There's none of the pageantry associated with the Hunger Games of Katniss's time. There's nothing to hide behind. The tributes are kept together in a cage in the zoo, and they're unfed until the games begin. They're then thrown into an old sports arena, until only one is left alive, and many of them die before the games even begin. And when the games are happening, there's no betting, there's no gifts sent in by observers, there's just 24 kids sent to their deaths. And generally, the games are barely mentioned. It kind of seems like people are losing interest in them. In an effort to keep the murder games going, the head game maker, Dr. Volumnia Gall, decides to assign students to be mentors to the tributes. This is going to be a school project for the mentors. They'll interview the tributes, they'll discuss ways to keep the games going, maybe changes to make, and they'll be graded on how well they interact with their tribute and how well their tribute does in the games themselves. The Capitol students do not think of district tributes as people. Snow and most of his classmates view the tributes as a means to an end, a way to earn prestige over their peers. Snow is assigned to mentor the girl from District 12, Lucy Gray Baird. Lucy Gray is the character you care about in this book, even though Snow is the viewpoint character. She's the one actually going through the Hunger Games. We're shown the reaping ceremony in District 12, where the tributes are, in theory, picked by lottery and by chance. And it's obvious that her position as a tribute was not chance. She upset someone in power in District 12, and as a result, her name is picked for the Hunger Games. And Lucy Gray is not from District 12. She remembers traveling between districts with her family, entertaining everywhere they went. But after the rebellion, travel between the districts became almost impossible. Lucy Gray's strength is as an entertainer. She knows how to work an audience, how to get them on their side, and she has to bring her best performance if she wants any chance of getting home. So Snow helps Lucy Gray. Because it will help him. His university admittance is riding on her performance. Over and over, Collins reminds us that Snow is acting out of self-interest. And for the moment, their interests align. As the mentors host interviews and discuss their tributes, Snow uses every opportunity to imply that Lucy Gray is not really district. I think this is a really well-written character trait. Throughout the whole book, Snow is so aware of the implications of what he says. He never outright says she's as good as people from the capital, just that she's better than the districts. He walks this line between agreeing and disagreeing with everyone, constantly manipulating people to get the upper hand. So while Snow is busy trying to turn the yearly death match to his advantage, one of his classmates is struggling with the mere concept of the games. Sejanus is a fellow mentor, and he's constantly speaking out against the Hunger Games. In a different book, Sejanus would be our protagonist. He speaks out against injustice and is willing to put his life on the line for what he believes. But this is Snow's book. So Sejanus is the antagonist. An antagonist is not always a bad person or the villain. They just have opposing goals and views to our protagonist. Sejanus is, in nearly every way, Snow's opposite. He's opposed to the Hunger Games. His family is new money, not old money. And his family is from one of the districts. Admittedly, one of the richer districts, but still district. Villain origin stories are often tragedies. They rely on a reader's knowledge of how it must end, that evil will eventually triumph, at least for a while. And this story is Snow's ascension and Sejanus's tragedy, especially because Sejanus has no idea what kind of story he is in. He thinks Snow is his best friend. But Snow is extremely jealous of Sejanus because he believes that Sejanus has everything that should belong to Snow. The money, the prestige, Sejanus even has a better tribute for the games. Snow doesn't understand why Sejanus cares about the tributes and the districts. Even when Sejanus admits that he used to go to school with the tribute that he's mentoring. Snow thinks that Sejanus should be grateful to be in the capital, and that he should know better than to relate to the districts. Okay, I'm getting distracted. So the games themselves. In the middle of all this, Snow has convinced himself that he's in love with Lucy Gray. She's just So much better than any district person. She's not at all what he expected from a tribute. But the whole time he's helping her prepare for the games, he's thinking about how her success or failure will reflect on him. He also likes the attention he gets because of her performance. He's kind of riding on her entertaining coattails here. He's so determined to win that he helps her cheat sneaking in poison, and he sabotages a trap set by the game masters. Once the Hunger Games officially begin, it's a waiting game for Snow. He can't do anything except occasionally send in food and water. But Sejanus sneaks into the arena. He's disgusted by the games and he hates himself for being involved at all. He's hoping the tributes will kill him and his death will be broadcast and will horrify the capital into ending the games snow who everyone believes is sejanus's friend is sent in after him by dr gall the head game master he's only in the arena for a short time even that short period is enough to impress on him how terrifying the games are he kills one of the tributes in self-defense and he and sejanus barely escape snow feels like his 10 minutes in the arena give him a unique insight into the games, and he understands now how the tributes feel. He's already entitled and self-centered, and this brief experience in the arena convinces him that people are, deep down, all awful murderers, only a breath away from destroying each other at all times. Lucy Gray wins the games, using every trick she can to survive, including hiding for most of it, and poisoning a few people. It's not glorious. It's just about endurance. Her days spent in the arena have taken a huge toll on her, and she's barely alive by the end. There's a brief moment where Snow thinks he's won the glory and the future he wants, and oh, maybe love, though that's a side note to the possibilities that are opening up to him as the mentor of the winning tribute. Before he can really bask in it, though, his cheating is discovered and he's sent away to be a peacekeeper in District 12. He thinks, well, at least he'll be with Lucy Gray, if she's still alive. He doesn't know what the Capitol plans to do with her. He never thought to ask. So the final part of the book is Snow's time in District 12. Peacekeepers serve for 20 years. He's trying to look on the bright side. He might be able to distinguish himself in service and earn some glory or power. And guess what? Sejanus is there too. You just can't escape this guy. Sejanus has been sent to be a peacekeeper because he is in disgrace for breaking into the arena. District 12 is poor, but as a peacekeeper, Snow at least has regular meals and it turns out Lucy Gray is indeed back in the district, and he'll be able to see her. Snow has convinced himself that he and Lucy Gray both believe and want the same things. It becomes apparent to the reader very quickly that they have actually very different desires and beliefs. Lucy Gray is loosely connected with a set of rebels— people who are planning to run away from the districts and live out in the wilderness. Snow looks down on them for believing that there is anything more to life than the capital and the districts. He's still loyal to the capital, but more than that, he's loyal to his status there as a scion of a rich family. Sejanus, however, is in complete agreement with the rebels. Snow and Sejanus are seen together with rebels, and Snow kills a second person to keep it a secret. He can't risk losing this last chance to regain power. Again and again we see Snow walk a delicate line between two sides, keeping his true loyalties hidden. This is both a strength and a flaw, which is a good character creation tip, by the way, if you're writing or playing D&D. Snow is always looking for double meanings and hidden agendas in those around him, which helps him, but also makes him paranoid and just distrustful. This is fun because this is also a trait of Katniss in the original trilogy. She and Snow understand each other very well, but they have very different end goals. Sejanus, bless his heart, who still believes Snow is his friend, tells him that he's going to help the rebels. They're going to break a prisoner out of jail and run for the woods to set up a resistance to the capital. Snow sends a secret message to Dr. Gall in the capital, warning them of the plan. He can't risk Sejanus ruining his chances. He'd be guilty by association, and he's already killed someone to keep himself safe. Sejanus and the rebels are caught by the peacekeepers and executed. It's at this point that Lucy Gray decides to run away and asks Snow to come with her. He is convinced he's going to be caught as a rebel sympathizer, and a murderer because the murder weapon is missing, and so he agrees to go. In his mind, it's the wilderness or execution. Literally the day he's going to leave with Lucy Gray, Snow is told he's been accepted into officer school. He'll be moved to the much richer district too and have a chance to excel and prove himself, perhaps even returning back to the capital. But the murder weapon is still out there. He could still be proven guilty and everything he's worked for snatched away. So he and Lucy Gray begin their walk away from District 12 and every step is a hardship. Snow wants power, influence, to make a name for himself, not to scrounge out a living in the wilderness. On their way out of the district... They stop at a little-used hideout, and there they find the murder weapons, the evidence against Snow. And now, the only thing tying him to his crimes is Lucy Gray. She's all that stands between him and what he considers his rightful place in the world. Snow turns on her immediately, convincing himself she's manipulated him and chasing her through the woods with a gun. He thinks of it as their personal hunger games. In the end, he believes he's left Lucy Gray for dead in the woods, and returns to take his place at officer school. He's sent on, but not to District 2. He's taken back to the capital and made the apprentice of Dr. Gall, the head game maker— Who has been watching him and is impressed with what she sees? Sejanus's parents even make him their heir. He will inherit all of their wealth, and they do it because he was such a good friend to Sejanus. At every turn, Snow is given the chance to do something different, to make a different choice, and every time. He chooses power and wealth and a position of authority over everything else. There's so much more to this book, especially about songs. There's a reason it's called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Lucy Gray is a musician, and music plays an important role in her winning the games and in her relationship with snow, We learn the origin of the Hanging Tree song from the original books, and how the Hunger Games came about in the first place. And because we're in Snow's viewpoint, Lucy Gray remains a mystery. He's convinced she turned on him and is now dead. But we don't know that for sure. My final word on The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot more to say about it than I realized. Collins returned to her world and wrote about a horrible person choosing to do horrible things. You don't like Snow by the end. He's not redeemed. But there are characters you can care about, like Sejanus and Lucy Gray and even Snow's cousin. For Snow, this is his rise to power, his return to what he considers his rightful place. But for the reader, it's a tragedy. It did drag a little in some places. I think it probably could have been shorter. But overall, it was a really good read. If you want more media like this, you should definitely read the Hunger Games trilogy. But for villain origins, I haven't actually read very many. The only one I can think of is Fairest by Marissa Meyer, which is part of her Lunar Chronicles series. Join me next time to hear about Tea from an Empty Cup. By Pat Cadigan. If you enjoyed the podcast, I'd love it if you could rate or review it. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast. Comments, questions, book requests, you can email me at backlogbookspod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.